came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes get different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta and Wurundjeri country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 15th of July. We always include a community service announcement, asking you to wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible, and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Today we have a wonderful interview for you with an amazing young astrophysicist who takes us deep into black holes and the nuance of improving gravitational wave detectors. Hola, mi amiga Isabel. (laughs) Hello, Brendan. Today, I'm very pleased to be speaking with Isabel Romero Shaw, etymologist, artist, runner, a member of both the OzGrab organisation and the LIGO collaboration, and she is a PhD candidate in astrophysics at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for speaking with us, Isabel. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Okay, so before we talk about your amazing gravitational wave PhD research and your and your wonderful planetomology book, Can you tell us where you grew up, please, Isabel, and tell us how you became interested in science and astronomy in the first place? Yeah, so I grew up in the beautiful city of Bath in the UK, which is a town that's built on its kind of Roman heritage, and it's full of all of this lovely golden Bath stone, and it's a really beautiful place to grow up. And I grew up there with some parents who didn't go to university themselves but were very curious and interested in the world and actually while she was raising me my mum did an open university degree which was in natural sciences and she did her the undergraduate portion of that um, while I was growing up and I was quite young I think I was four or five and she was doing this degree and she would go out into the garden in the very small hours of the morning and we would collect wood lice together And she would get me to help her balance the wood lice on top of her camera so she could take pictures of them underneath. And this was just a really nice experience for me, like my first kind of hands on 
science experience. And it was kind of a magical experience because you go out into the garden in the night and you feel like you're you're the only person who's observing this kind of beautiful secret bit of nature. So that was kind of a good way to like to gain some kind of appreciation for the natural world. Um, I also was fortunate to go to a school where they let us be quite curious and direct own kind of curiosity about the things that we were studying. So we had various things like open-ended homeworks where they would give us a topic and then we would just be able to go off and investigate that topic and do something to present our research on that topic in any way that we wanted. So you could make a poster or you could write a poem or you could present an article that you'd written on whatever the topic was. So that was a good way to get me interested in being curious and in science. We also had a science club at primary school, which was like an after school club where we would do the thing where you you put a little model of a diver inside a plastic water bottle and then you squeeze the water bottle and you see that the change in pressure makes the little diver sink to the bottom. Yep. Um, and that kind of easy hands-on experiment. So I was interested in science and curious about the world from a young age, but my interest in astronomy itself didn't actually happen until I was already um, at university studying physics. <laughs> That's cool. Okay, well, tell us a little about those school days and your early ambitions and did those ambitions change? Yeah, I think they did, really. So as a kid, I really wanted to just read all the time. Um, it was kind of a pain for my parents because I would just read when I was supposed to be going to sleep, when I was supposed to be going out, when I was supposed to be going to various sports classes they'd booked me in for, I would just be reading and hiding somewhere behind the sofa, just trying to read and not do anything that they wanted me to do. So this kind of transitioned into me wanting to be a writer. And I did write a lot of, of kind of little stories when I was younger as well. Um, I also really loved art. I liked um, drawing and painting. And I kind of wanted to be a, a writer or an artist. Um, so when I was a bit later on in school, when I was doing my A-levels, I chose my A-levels to be fine art, English literature and physics. Cool. Which is quite a, a varied selection of things. Um, but when it came to actually going to university, I decided that I wanted to pursue physics, um, largely because I did quite well at fine art and English and I didn't do quite as well at physics and I didn't want to <laughs> I didn't want to let physics get the better of me. So I went on to do it at university to, to show it who was boss, basically. <laughs> That's a great combination, I think. That's fantastic. <laughs> so. After that successful school career at the University of Birmingham, you earned your master's degree in physics and you were awarded the prize for the highest performance for your master's project, which was on the topic of improving gravitational wave detectors, which we'll get to a little bit later. And during this time, you also worked in industry on a number of software development projects. And in your last industry project, you were a team leader for a group of placement students who were working to enhance the software development process. Now, before we talk about your PhD, which in itself is quite computing heavy, I just wanted to ask, have you always been interested in software and coding? <laughs> Absolutely not. I didn't really know or appreciate anything to do with software and coding before I got to university. And then we did a little bit of coding in my kind of first years at university. But I didn't really love it and I didn't really see the application of it. 
And then I happened to have some kind of connections that let me do this software development placement with a company called Outran, which was based in Bath, um, the branch that I worked with. And so I could easily go and work there over the university holidays. And so I went there and I wasn't expecting to love it as much as I did, but there was something about the way that they taught me how to do programming in a very structured, organized and logical manner, which was very different to the kind of coding that I'd seen at university, where I think we were being taught by academics who hadn't been taught about software from this kind of, it was basically a safety critical approach um, at Altran because they do a lot of software that's like for, for airplanes or for things basically where you can't have it breaking like while it's running. So you need to catch all of the errors early on and make sure that everything is correct. And they call this correctness by construction. Um, and that way of working, I just really loved it. I really loved the logic. I loved how how sensible it was, how like how rigorously everything was checked. And but I also really liked the creativity aspect to it. So when I was working there, I think in my first placement, I was doing something where I was making a Tetris game. Um, I was I was learning the coding language that they were using, and I was using it to make a Tetris game. And it allowed me to be quite creative with the coding, and I, it, it enabled me to see how all of this beautiful logic and mathematics could work together to create something visually um visually quite appealing as well so that was why I kind of ended up really loving the software side of things and then incorporating that into my degree when I went back to Birmingham um after the holidays and that that really changed my perspective on my whole degree because as you go through your physics degree, there are more and more opportunities to use programming and software. And I found that this background that I now had in software and this appreciation that I now had for doing things properly the first time and structuring them well, that really stood me in good stead to go forward with my PhD. And it really changed my outlook on the whole thing. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, what a great start. Okay. Now, I'm not going to go on about all the awards and scholarships you've been winning on a yearly basis, but just before we get to your PhD and being selected for Homeward Bound, would you like to tell us about that big move from the University of Birmingham to Monash University in Melbourne? How did that come about and how have you adapted to life in Melbourne? So I guess the the move kind of had its beginnings when I was thinking about doing a PhD and I was Googling around to see what kind of PhDs were out there to do with gravitational waves. So I knew I wanted to do gravitational waves and I was looking around to see whether there were any projects that I could do that were related to this thing that I decided I absolutely had to do. I absolutely had to do gravitational waves. So I was looking around and I stumbled across my now supervisor, Paul Lasky's website. And he had a list of his projects and the kind of things that he was working on. And they all sounded really, really exciting and incredible. So I just sent him an email and said, would you be interested in working with me? Kind of not taking into account the fact that he was in Australia. I thought, I would deal with that when it came to it. If he replied to me and if he was interested in working with me, then I would work out what I was going to do about moving to Australia later on. But he did get back to me and I ended up having a bunch of Skype calls with Paul and with my other supervisor, Eric Frain. Um, 
and we chatted and we chatted about the kind of projects I could do and we also chatted about how great Australia was yep. because Paul is Australian um, but Eric is American so Eric could tell me all of the different things that he'd noticed about how Australia was just brilliant and beautiful and why I should move there and why it would be better than the UK <laughs> um, so then we began the long process of visa applications um, which wasn't really helped by the fact that also in that time I got married and then we had to find a visa for my husband as well. Um, however, I, I would say that it probably helps to move continents with somebody else, um, especially somebody from your own culture, because it was quite a culture shock when I got to Australia, which I wasn't really expecting because I'm from the UK and we speak the same language and we have like you know, that it's only been a few hundred years since the the white people in Australia have arrived here. So I wasn't expecting the culture to have already diverged so much, but there is like, there is quite a big difference in the culture. And I'm not sure what it is, but I was thinking about it recently. And I think it is when you're in the UK, you assume that everyone around you is miserable. And when you're in Australia, everyone around you isn't miserable. So... <laughs> You have to change your outlook on things, um, which is actually a good thing. It was a great thing. Um, and the other things that have really helped to move here is just the fact that Australia is wonderful. So the flora and fauna, everything is just gorgeous. Um, the kind of thing that I will miss, I think, when I move back home are the really everyday things that I see on my walks around my suburbs here. So the eucalypt trees and the possums, I see them all the time when I'm walking around. And I won't see them at all when I go back to the UK. So that's something I've had to adjust to, but something that I will definitely miss. Thanks, Isabel. I think that mindset perspective is something I'll remember for a long time. Thank you very much. <laughs> I see that you're three years into your PhD now, and I've been looking on the archive server and in journals like the Astrophysical Journal Letters and Monthly Notices. And you already have quite a number of first author and collaboration papers published now. Are you doing your PhD by publication or by thesis? And are you on track? How's it going? Yeah, so I'm doing my PhD by publication and I, I am on track. And I think being on track is very much to do with how lucky you get with your PhD topic. And I think especially if you choose to do gravitational wave physics, um, then there's quite a lot of new things to, to write about and to write papers about. So that's definitely helped with being productive. Okay, thank you. That's a great wave to be on. Now, we know that many PhDs often have great mentors and supervisors, and you yourself have a strong record of mentoring and advising students, but would you like to tell us about some of the people who've supported your career and your research directions? Yeah, definitely. So this started at Birmingham in my final year of my undergraduate degree, which was an integrated master's. So that's very similar to the kind of honours programmes that you have yeah. at Australian universities. And my supervisor for that project um, was called Andreas Freiser. And he was a really great mentor to me and my master's project partner. And he really made us believe that we could we could do like even at that stage we could do a project that was going to be influential 
to the field of gravitational waves. And he also really encouraged us to really know a lot about the background of the field, even if we didn't think it was going to be directly related to the project. Like we should, we should know everything that we could about the field just in case somebody during an assessment or something decided to ask us a tricky question, we should be able to come back with that. He also told us things like, because we were both women in physics, he said, people will underestimate you because you're women and that will be to their detriment. So you should use that to kind of get forward in life, which I think was a good piece of advice as well. Um, Some other mentors that I've had, so, Ilya, um, Ilya Mandel, he is a researcher. He's a professor at uh, Monash now, but he was also a professor at Birmingham. And I've done a few projects with him and he's always made research and physics seem very exciting and dynamic. And he does all of these back of the envelope calculations, which kind of make it seem like you can sit down in a, in a cafe somewhere and just using your basic knowledge of physics, work out something incredible about the universe, which is an amazing skill to have and is very inspiring. And then I also think my current supervisors, Paul and Eric, who I've talked about a little bit earlier, they're both really supportive and really great. And they're also really fun to work with. And they definitely make it seem like a career in gravitational wave astrophysics is definitely a good thing to be doing at this point in science and in history. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, thanks. Well, Our listeners will be aware of gravitational wave astronomy from our previous episodes with gravitational wave researchers like Professor Matthew Bales, Dr Fiona Panther, Debordri Chattopadhyay, Shanika Gala-Udagay and Cheyenne Chatterjay, some of whom you've worked with, I believe. But let's do some science now and look at your PhD work itself. Can you paint the big picture of your PhD research, the technologies, the methodologies you're using, and what are the big questions that you're looking at, Isabel? Yes, I can. So we have a whole load of gravitational wave detections. The ones that we've detected so far are signals from coalescing compact binaries. So these are the very dense remnants of stars which are in orbits around each other, and they're spiraling around each other until they collide and merge together. And the gravitational waves we detect are the space-time ripples that emanate away from those those orbits, those spiraling downs. What I'm doing is looking at those signals to try and figure out the shape of the spiral that these objects are tracing around each other. And that shape is imprinted in the waveform in a certain way. And... The reason I'm doing that is because the shape of the orbit, the shape of that spiral that these objects are making around each other can tell us about the past that these objects might have. So it can tell us things like, were these objects evolving together as stars before they died and became compact objects? Or did they become compact objects before they met? And were they kind of clattering around inside some kind of dense region of space like a globular cluster? and then they became gravitationally bound to each other and went on to merge. So that's the kind of thing I'm looking for and that's why I'm doing it. And the way that I do that is to take the gravitational wave strain data, which we get from these giant kilometer scale interferometers in America and Italy and analyzing that using something called parameter estimation, 
um, in which we essentially compare a whole load of different models of gravitational waveforms from different types of systems to the signal that we've detected and try and figure out what parameters could best replicate the signal that we've detected. It's amazing, the shape of orbits and the parameters. So, <laughs> that sounds like great fun. <laughs> okay. Now, we always ask a couple of technical questions for those listeners who like to put their propeller hats on when they listen to an episode. And many of our guests have mentioned black holes, and we, we've heard about those black hole mergers that have um, resulted in gravitational waves but we've never really had an in-depth introduction to black holes. Can you talk us through the prediction of the existence of black holes, the search for them, the first discovery of a black hole, and the general properties of black holes? Can you paint that picture for us, Isabel? I can certainly try. So the prediction of black holes kind of goes all the way back to when we first figured out how gravity works. Um, in regions other than just the Earth. So how it works on these grand cosmic scales. And that theory naturally led to the prediction of black holes. So very early on in kind of the history of the research around gravity, um, Isaac Newton in 1666 showed that the force that keeps us connected to the Earth is the same force as the force that keeps the Earth connected to the sun. So traveling around the sun in the Earth's orbit. And there's this famous example of Newton watching an apple fall from a tree um, to the ground. And by doing that, he realized that the moon was actually falling to the earth in just the same way, but that its momentum is carrying it perpendicular to the earth's surface. And that keeps it from ever falling to the ground. So at that point, scientists began to ask how massive would an object have to be before it dragged even light towards its surface. So before light wouldn't just zoom past the object, but would actually start falling towards its surface like the apple did. So then in a few years later, well, quite, quite a few years later, hundreds of years later, um, in 1783, a man called John Mitchell, who was actually a professor of geology at Cambridge at the time, mentioned the kind of star that could do this uh, in a paper that he read to the Royal Society. And he called this a dark star. And his paper detailed how you could work out the properties of stars from looking at how the light they emitted was affected by their gravity. And his logic was that if a star was massive enough, light would not be able to leave its surface. And so he didn't realize at the time how dense these objects would be or how they could come into existence. He was just kind of doing a, a mental exercise in saying this kind of star could theoretically exist. Then a little later on, in 1795, a French scientist called Laplace arrived independently at the same conclusion, so that a star of a particular size and density um, would not be able to allow light to leave its surface. Okay, so that kind of all happened, but then not much happened after that in this kind of prediction of these dark stars until 1915, when Albert Einstein produced his general theory of relativity, which is essentially that matter tells space-time how to bend and space-time tells matter how to move. And he proved this using gravitational lensing of distant stars around the sun during an eclipse. Yep. So just after that, 
Schwarzschild came up with the solution to general relativity that would characterize a black hole. So this would be the, the singularity that doesn't allow any light to leave its gravitational field. So after this, a few different scientists started thinking about this a bit more seriously. So in 1939, um, Oppenheimer and his student Volkov predicted the existence of very dense stars with possibly infinitely strong gravity. Um, then another kind of tens of years later, in the early 1960s, a physicist called uh, Robert H. Dick compared these dense objects to the black hole of Calcutta, which was a prison um, which was infamous for letting people in but never letting them out, um, which might be the first recognized use of the term black hole. Then in 1963, um, Kerr found the solution to the GR for a spinning black hole. Also in 1963, a science journalist called Anne Ewing um, entitled an article that she was writing about the phenomenon um, black holes in space. And then in 1965, a man called Newman found a solution for a black hole that is spinning and electrically charged. So we have all of these kind of solutions for black holes and we the, the general public is starting to think about black holes because they have these, these articles that they can read. So they're now things that are, are known about in kind of popular culture. And in 1967, there was actually an episode of Star Trek um, in which a black star was referred to. So these kind of things were then popularly known about and scientifically characterized, but we didn't really think that they were realities. We thought that they were maybe theoretically possible but they would never be observed or they maybe didn't actually exist. But then in 1967, the same year that that episode of Star Trek came out, Jocelyn Bell um, discovered pulsars, which are rapidly rotating neutron stars. Um, and so neutron stars are incredibly dense remnants of stellar collapse and their density led scientists to think, well, could there be even more dense, even more massive um, stellar remnants, which would actually be these black holes that we think might exist. Okay, so that was in 1967. And at this point, something had already been discovered, which was um, X-ray emission from Cygnus X1. So this is a blue supergiant star, which is accreting matter onto a black hole that it's orbiting around. But at the time it was observed, this wasn't known. We just saw the X-ray emission and people were trying to work out what it was. And then it took until the early 1970s for people to think, hang on, this looks like what we would expect to see if we had a large star that was accreting matter onto a black hole. So that was when kind of the first black hole is thought to have been discovered is um, Cygnus X1, which was discovered in 1964, but characterized as a black hole in the early 1970s. And since then we have had other observations of black holes and X-ray binaries. Um, since 1995, people have been observing about 90 stars, which are orbiting the radio source Sagittarius A star, which is a radio source near the center of the Milky Way. And scientists have been inferring the mass of the thing that these stars are orbiting around. And what they've figured out is that there's this incredibly massive object contained within just 0.002 light years in the very middle of the Milky Way, um, which is the only thing that can cause the observed motion of these stars. So that is what we think is a supermassive black hole. 
its mass is four times 10 to the six times the mass of the sun. So it's very, very, very massive. Ooh. And yeah, so since then we've had also things like the first observations of gravitational waves from black holes um, crashing into each other. So that's kind of a long history of black hole theory and observation. Thank you very much. That's fabulous. What a, yeah, it's a great story and a lovely timeline. Okay, now to follow up on that, we've had 50-odd confirmed gravitational wave candidates that have turned out to be mainly black hole-black hole mergers, and there's been some neutron star-neutron star mergers, and there's been two black hole neutron star mergers. Now, could you tell us about the work you did for your master's project at Birmingham on improving the effectiveness of gravitational wave detectors because we really rely on them so strongly? Yes, they are incredibly important and very amazing instruments, these gravitational wave detectors. So what I was doing at Birmingham um, was basically creating a model of the noise at these detectors. So kind of similar to what you do for these podcasts where you try and remove the ambient noise in the background of the signal of our talking. A similar thing is done at the gravitational wave detectors where there's a constant level of vibration that's going on all the time. And you need to remove this level of vibration in order to actually figure out what signals you're observing. So the project I was doing at Birmingham was essentially modeling this noise and trying to create quite an accurate model for the detector itself so that we could tweak different parameters. For example, the length of the arms of the interferometer, the power of the laser that's used to shoot up and down each arm so that we can measure the, the length of the arms when the gravitational wave passes through, or things like the, the masses of the mirrors at each end of the interferometer arms, which reflect that laser. And to see if by tweaking these parameters, we could change the shape of the noise or, or change the amplitude of the noise to better allow us to detect signals. Okay, that's great. They close down LIGO regularly, don't they, for refinements? They, they shut it down and they work on improvements. And this is the kind of thing that my project at Birmingham was trying to, to work on, um, to try and figure out what kind of improvements can be made to increase the sensitivity of the detectors every time they're um, closed for refurbishments. Fantastic. Now, a bit of a divergence now. Just like my daughters who are, I think, about your age, Isabel, you've been living in Melbourne throughout the course of the pandemic, which has been subject to some incredible lockdowns in Melbourne, including one that went for 112 days. Oh, God. My daughters both got kittens to successfully save their <laughs> mental health. I think it worked. And during these lockdowns you've had in Melbourne, what books or TV shows or creative pursuits have you been occupying yourself with? Oh, well, I wish I'd gotten a kitten. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I started doing Duolingo, learning Spanish quite obsessively. I've, I think I've just hit my like 514th day 
of doing Duolingo continuously. And I started that at the beginning of the pandemic. So that tells you how long it's been going on for. Um, we also, me and my husband decided to order a really large amount of clay and make a load of bowls and pots and things and then paint them and get them fired in a proper kiln and things. So that took a really long time. That was a good time consuming creative pursuit. I've also been doing an awful lot of reading. So in the UK, we have uh, the National Health Service, the NHS, and I started reading a book called This Is Going To Hurt by Adam Kay at the beginning of the pandemic. And that's all about the work of a junior doctor. And that really kind of refreshed my perspective on the NHS and gave me an additional appreciation for the NHS. Yep. Um, I also bought a Kindle because I realized that the amount of books I was going through was quickly starting to fill up my very small flat. And then I used that to read these kind of big, bulky, classic books. So I read Anna Karenina um, and I read a bunch of Isaac Asimov books and a few other kind of classic books that I'd always been meaning to read but could never find copies of or were too expensive to buy paper copies of. And then obviously I've been watching a lot of Netflix, as I think we all have, and um And also watching a lot of British panel shows because I feel quite homesick and they make me feel a little bit more at home. And then, of course, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts. So I've been listening to um, there's a podcast called No Such Thing as a Fish, which is by the researchers who find facts for a certain British panel show called QI. And that's really interesting and, yeah, really fun. (laughs) Very good. And I just um, this morning I listened to a Another podcast that you were on recently about women in STEM. Ah. Okay, well, while we're on this topic, it might be good to mention here how the current worldwide COVID-19 crisis has impacted on your studies and your research. Mm. Yeah, this is an interesting one. I think it probably varies from person to person. Yep. It was kind of okay at first, like... I don't have any direct dependents here. So I didn't have to take a load of time out from working to look after anyone. I had to adjust to working from home, but that was kind of fine. And at the the beginning, I had quite a lot of projects um, for my PhD that I just kind of needed to push over the final lines of, of research to get them published and things. So that was completely okay to do in lockdown. But as the pandemic kind of wore on, it's been harder and harder to find the kind of motivation to get new projects off the ground and to get them rolling along with all the momentum that they need to actually carry them through to the final stages. Um, Also something that's contributing to that a lot I think is the fact that I haven't seen my family now for a very long time because I I came back from the UK just before the pandemic hit so at the beginning of 2019 and I haven't been back since, which is, yeah, it's quite hard. I can imagine that would be, yeah, that would be very tough. Mm. Okay, well, thanks, Isabel. Now, I know that you do great outreach work as a mentor, a teacher, a science communicator. I've seen some of your YouTube videos and, yeah, some podcasts you've been on, and I attended a recent online seminar that you did. Can you tell us about your passion for outreach? Yeah, I can. Um, So this is kind of, uh, this has changed a lot for me 
over my life because I really used to hate public speaking. Um, I was really incredibly self-conscious and I would just go really bright red in the face whenever I was talking to a group of people. Um, I don't really know what changed other than that I realized that if I was talking about something that I was genuinely really excited and passionate about, then it was actually very easy and very enjoyable to talk to people. And this was kind of a revelation for me. And it actually happened when I was giving a talk at uni um, at, at Birmingham and we had to choose a physics topic. And I decided to give my talk on the physics of snails because I really love snails. Um, I've had two giant African land snails as pets in the past. Can't have them in Australia because they're illegal because they're pests, but I had them in the UK. I really love snails. I just think they're they're really beautiful and they're really interesting to study. And they have this great juxtaposition of the softness of their bodies and the hardness and the intricacies of their shells. Um, I won't talk about snails too much because that's a different podcast. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I could talk about things naturally and passionately when I was actually excited about them. So that was one thing. And then I also think it's really important um, as a woman um, so somebody who is slightly underrepresented in physics, um, it's important to to be represented and to show, especially young girls, that science can actually be exciting and there are things there for them. It's not just a land where everything is kind of unemotive and dry. It's actually very exciting. It is indeed. And that's exactly why we've got a a great diversity policy that's working really well for this podcast. But I see, Isabel, that you have very modestly omitted one of your most outstanding outreach achievements, your illustrated book for young people, Plan Etymology. Why Uranus is not called, or Uranus is not called George, and other facts about space and words... It's beautifully illustrated. It's absolutely fabulous and fascinating and available in good bookshops on Amazon and on Kindle. My nieces will be getting copies. Can you tell us about your book, please, Isabel? I would love to. This is my other lockdown pursuit, I guess. Um, I started becoming very interested in words and in the history of words. And especially in relation to kind of human evolution. So this kind of got me thinking about how, as humans themselves evolved and started spreading across the planet, like we've always been aware of the night sky and we've always been aware that there are some stars that are different from others. And there are some stars which wander around the sky in a different way to all of the other stars and those are the planets. And it just really fascinated me that these things have been known to humans for such a long time and yet we've only become really familiar with them through kind of telescope observations and sending probes to them in the relatively recent past. So I started looking into that. And then I started learning about the different mythology that people have associated with the different planets over the course of human evolution and human history. And I just decided that this was a really cool way to bring together a whole load of different subjects because something that I found very interesting when I was a child was bringing together subjects which we weren't really taught about in tandem. So bringing together like 
history and maths or like, I don't know, English and geography or that kind of thing. And by bringing them together, it made it very emotive for me. It made it very exciting for me to study. So I just thought, well, I may as well give an outreach talk on this. And I did because Osgraph were doing some online outreach talks over the course of the pandemic. And I gave a talk about uh, the etymology of various different space objects. And for that talk, I made a whole load of illustrations. And then once I'd made the illustrations and I had all of this research that I'd done, I thought, well, I may as well put this all into a book. So I decided to stick with the theme of the names of the planets, because that was the most consistent theme that I had in all of the research that I'd done on the names of space objects. And yeah, I just turned it into a book. Fantastic. Well, I've got my Christmas present for my nieces all sorted. And (laughs) you've got nieces, they'll probably be getting pottery. (laughs) yeah they will they will (laughs) loads of pottery (laughs) now another thing you've been selected as one of the next expeditioners for homeward bound and you're heading off for an antarctic adventure and new leadership opportunities could you tell us about this great program please yes i can so homeward bound is a program that aims to give women in leadership, the training that they need in order to become the leaders that we need for the world of tomorrow. So as we know, um, there is a climate crisis going on and current models of leadership have not been very effective at leading us out of the climate crisis. And we think that this is probably something to do with outdated models of leadership. And by looking to other kind of cultures um, and by looking to other people who haven't traditionally been in these leadership roles, particularly for things like the the big companies that are currently causing all of the destruction to the world, um, we can maybe do better. So Homer Bound is, is aiming to take a thousand women over the course of 10 years and give them this leadership training and also to connect them together because the connections with, that we have with each other are very important um, in building this global community that can take care of the planet together. So I think there have been about 500 women who've gone through this so far. And I'm in the sixth cohort, so the sixth set of 100 women. And we are planning to go to Antarctica together um, at the end of 2022. So we were planning to go at the beginning of 2022, but the vaccine rollout has not been as speedy as many of us were hoping. So that's meant that the voyage is going to be um, delayed until the end of 2022. Um, And people often ask, why do we go to Antarctica together as part of this leadership training expedition? And the reason is Antarctica is one of the places in the world that is most crucial to the stability of the planet's climate because it reflects a lot of the sun's heat um, back away from the earth, but it's also one of the places that is the most affected by climate change itself. So it's also heating up at a rate that is much more rapid than the rest of the world and it's melting very fast. So it's a place that is absolutely essential to going forward and to mitigating the effects of climate change. It's also really remote and what we want to do is we want to 
get all of this leadership training and learn all of these skills and then be able to apply them in a place that is very remote and very removed from our normal zones of comfort and removed from all of our usual people and places and able to actually kind of introspect and grow in a very remote and isolating environment where we can really learn about ourselves. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. And it's an incredibly necessary task that we all have to work on. Thank you very much. Now, the mic is all yours and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science, in equity and representations of diversity or science denialism or career paths or your own passion for research or our human quest for new knowledge. The microphone's <laughs> all yours. Thank you very much. There are so many things that I could talk about at this point. I think there are so many important challenges that we face as a species. Like the, the apathy towards the climate crisis is something that I think is a real struggle. I think people are going about their daily lives. I mean, me included, people are going about their daily lives as though a climate crisis isn't happening, but it absolutely is. And I think we really need to start focusing on that and to start building it into all of our policies in every aspect of life and every organization. I think we need to have a strategy to fighting this thing. Um, but there are also issues around, for example, women and minorities in science being overwhelmed or overburdened with the responsibility to make changes in their organizations. Um, which I think is another barrier to them actually staying in research roles. There is obviously an argument to say that if you want to change something, you should do it yourself. But I also think that we should educate everybody to be aware that the best way that we can work together is when everyone is included and when we have a diverse group. And by ignoring that and by saying, oh, well, it's not my problem, you're actually kind of working under an illusion that actually doesn't benefit you either. Like if you're not working towards change like that. So I think both of these things that I've mentioned, the climate crisis apathy and also apathy towards um, bringing minorities into places where they're not currently represented. I think both of them can be fixed by just educating people on the, the real implications and the real consequences of inaction. Well, I think in 10 or 20 years' time, you'll still be very proud of everything you've just said, Isabel. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Now, <laughs> Thank you. Is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? Yes. Well, um, so recently we had the results of the detections from the first half of LIGO and Virgo's third observing run. Um, and that's been all published. But what we haven't heard yet are the detections from the second half of the third observing run. So I would keep my eye out for those results if I was you. Fantastic. I will definitely be. Last week's merger was, uh, yeah, very exciting for everyone. So What's next for you after your PhD? Have you got your eye on a postdoc or what, Isabella? I am currently not sure, largely because I want to move back to the UK yeah. and I don't know what's really available for me there at the moment. 
so yeah it takes some thinking about I think and I haven't had a whole load of time to go looking for next jobs since I'm currently focusing on getting this one done exactly yeah fantastic well thank you so much Isabel Romero Shaw astrophysicist author artist etymologist Good luck with the rest of your work. It sounds like you've got a great research trajectory mapped out for you, whether it's here or Europe or the UK. Who knows? On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thank you especially for your time today. You're very generous. You've got a busy schedule, I know. Congratulations and good luck with nailing that doctorate and your next career move. And I did want to talk about a bit more about learning Spanish and ice skating, Isabel, but we're rapidly <laughs> running out of time. So if listeners want to follow Isabel, you can find her on Twitter as at astrobell underscore RS. And developers can find her work on GitHub. So just thanks, Isabel. Muchas gracias. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astroblogger website. And we'll see you in two weeks when Ian returns with his monthly Skywatch for observers and astrophotographers. Radio Wave!